0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark.
1: Few people are as important to the modern history of the Reformed and Presbyterian churches as J. Gresham Machen. He lived from 1881 to 1937. And during his brief lifetime, he did not only pioneering New Testament scholarship, but he founded Westminster Seminary and led the Presbyterian confessionalists out of the Presbyterian mainline and formed the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Because Machin is so important for our work here at Westminster Seminary, California, the theme for our annual conference this year coming up this month on January 14th and 15th is Christianity and Liberalism Revisited. A retrospective and prospective look at J. Gresham Machen's work and perennial relevance for the church today. There's still time to register. Go to wscal.edu/conference2011, and that last part is one word. Joining us to talk about Machen, his life, and his background is Dr. Catherine Vendrunen. She did her doctoral work on J. Gresham Machen the foothills of the Matterhorn, familial antecedents of J. Gresham Machen, in 2006 at Loyola University in Chicago. And she's a member of the denomination that Machen helped to found the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Hi, Catherine, and welcome to Office Hours. Thank you. First of all, let's cover the basics for the listener who might not be intimately familiar with Machen. Who was he? Uh, Where was he born? And and what's the significance of that? So let's start at the beginning.
2: Machin was born in Baltimore in 1881. He um, came from a family that had its roots firmly in the South, which uh, defined him in some ways. My dissertation focused on three generations in the 19th century of Greshams and Machins. And what I found was that. The family, three generations back, even in the early part of the 1800s, was firmly uh, committed to both education and the Presbyterian Church. So his heritage formed who he was uh, mainly through his mother, Minnie Gresham Machen. He was the second child. Um, His older brother was four years older than he was, and Arthur Machen was your idyllic boy. He loved his mother. He uh, took up botany. He studied the prophets of the Bible. He studied the kings of England. He uh, never seemed to do wrong. So Machen, obviously, is son number two. Was the little rascal.
1: Which is probably not the way that most people think about Machen, right?
2: No, he was very human. At four months old, he was baptized, and he tried to grab the little baptismal font, and he almost spilled the water. (laughs) When he was one, he was given a Japanese doll for his birthday, and he promptly tore its head off. Um, His younger brother, Thomas, who was four years younger than he, um, when uh, his mother would ask him, who needs a spanking, would say Ah uh, Yes, he was a little boy who was the one who was always getting into the trouble. But then around age five or six, we see through his mother's diaries that he became a very personable, likable person. Uh, she would talk about how he would talk to the milkman and find out all the news of the neighborhood. Um, he would go somewhere and immediately everybody would be his friends he'd be off invited to different picnics and parties that the rest of the family weren't even as a young boy
1: so he's very social yes
2: he was a very social likable friendly congenial personality he was a studious student uh interestingly part of my dissertation was the educational influences of the time and he started kindergarten at a time period when You didn't learn to spell. You just learned to write. You didn't learn to read until you were about seven or eight, and you learned cursive before you learned to print. So he was very frustrated because he wanted to read. He wanted to read books. He was born into a home where there were books everywhere. He had a certain space in the study where his books were. His older brother read to him, and he... he, once he learned to read, his world opened up, and he read everything he could find. But until that point, I think he was a little frustrated that he had to rely on everybody else to read to him. Now, he's
1: born in the Victorian world, in what people might not think of as the South, but scholars of Machen often connect him to the South, and we'll come back to that. He is in a family with a very strong maternal presence, but we never hear about Machen's father, at least not very often. What What about Machen's dad?
2: My studies pretty much showed he was a lawyer. He was very busy. By the time he retired from the bar, he had a record number of cases he had, had been involved in. He was a member of the church and a leader in the church. He was involved when they went on family vacations. He would make sure his family got to Macon, Georgia, to visit Many Gressa Machen's parents. He would make sure his family would get there safely, and then he would go back to work, and he would come and spend short times visiting. Um, he was involved in the life. We know that Machen, Jay Gresham Machen, and his older brother Arthur idolized his father. We know that Arthur Machen worked hard. He died shortly after coming home from attending church so we know that he was a pious man, but I think that his influence in the home was more the breadwinner. It was mainly Minnie Machen, his J. Gresham Machen's mother, who was the spiritual influence and the intellectual influence on her boys.
1: What does the J stand for in J. Gresham Machin?
2: J. Gresham Machen is named after his maternal grandfather, John Gresham, who was a very prestigious man for his time in Macon, Georgia. He was involved in one of the first manufacturing companies in, Ma- in Macon. He was part of the political system. He was um he owned a couple plantations and he, he's a very no- notable man because he was a a generous man. He helped out the Confederacy, but He didn't invest all the money that had been entrusted to him by the different schools and churches, the Presbytery in the Southeast. Um, He was the treasurer for all this money, and he did not invest it in Confederate bonds. So he basically helped a lot of institutions survive by not being one of these full force, southerner-only
1: people. Which means after the war, having not invested in the Confederacy, then those those investments would still be worth something. Had he invested in the Confederacy and the Confederacy loses, then, of course, all those investments are essentially worthless because Confederate money after the war is of little or no value.
2: Yes, that's correct. And uh, a good example of somebody who wholeheartedly bought into the Confederacy was RL Dabney, professor at Hampton Sydney College, who ended up losing everything because he he'd bought into the Confederate bonds and even speculated uh moving to South America or somewhere else because he had been so disheartened by the war. So even though James Gaston comes from a very southern background and was named after this wonderful man and his grandfather, he did not come from a blindly Confederate-type
1: Southerness. Machen is born in the late uh, 19th century. How mobile was his family? How much did they travel? How how large was his world as a, as a boy before he goes off to university?
2: His family, I would paint them as being upper-middle class. In the summers, Baltimore would get very hot and even dangerous because of all the mosquitoes. And so they would go up into the mountains in New Hampshire or on the coast, in Maine. So he traveled, even as a young child, and vacationed in other places. He is painted by some people as being of a more upper class, traveling to Europe numerous times, and his family having a summer home somewhere, things like that. And that wasn't really true. They always rented. Most of the times when he traveled to Europe, it was education or later in his life for his career i believe he took maybe two trips that were vacation in europe but his family would go and they would hike in the mountains they would have somebody who would guide them through the mountains and they'd sleep in a hut you know so they weren't taking these prestigious vacations but they could afford to go for long periods of time and see different parts of the world
1: they weren't opulent but they weren't impoverished either
2: no and most of the vacations he took were centered around family he would go to his uncle's farm in virginia Um, he would go to macon and they would spend several months while um, minnie's parents were alive they would spend several months down there and be basically homeschooled and tutored by people in the neighborhood most of what he did was family-centered.
1: One of the things that comes up frequently in narratives about Machen's early life is the importance of church. When was he catechized, and in what sort of a church was he raised? Talk about his early church life.
2: Interestingly enough, the Presbyterian Church where they attended in Baltimore had decided to become part of the Southern Presbyterian Church during the Civil War. This was a time when things were not very... Two kingdoms in the churches because pastors were basically demanded in places like Baltimore because it was a border state very close to the capital. The pastors were encouraged to preach union loyalty from the pulpit. And Machen's pastor had decided this was not going to happen. Well, it wasn't Machen's, the The pastor of the church back then had decided that it would be better to form a, a Southern Presbytery, so they they so formed the Presbytery of Potasco, and basically his church was made up of Southern expatriates. So not only was his family there, his mother up from Georgia, but his mother's aunt came with her family to Baltimore after the war. Um, her, her, his mother's uncle came up and settled in and had a law practice in baltimore and went to the church so he grew up with his cousins in the church from the south he grew up with other southerners who had decided that the south was bankrupt after the war and had resettled in baltimore and he um grew up in a church that pretty much upheld the idea that the church was not the place for politics and his you know his uncles his father were elders. His brother became a deacon. I thought this was kind of interesting. The children did not go to church until they were five. They stayed at home, and then they didn't really attend both services, the morning and evening service, until about age seven or eight. But I thought it was interesting. There was no nursery Sunday school type program in the church at this time. But he started going to church at age Five, He thought it was a lot more interesting than being at home when everybody was away. And he's a
1: social boy, so.
2: <laughs> right. He was a very social boy. And he made professional faith, became a communicant member at age 15. But at home, he'd been catechized. By age six, he could recite the shorter catechism and earned a dollar for his effort. <laughs> and he, um, he was, as the second child would be, he was faster at such things at milestones than his older brother had been because he, he worshipped his older brother and wanted to do exactly what Arthur was doing. So he would he would he would reach these milestones earlier.
1: But in the nineteenth century for an American for a boy raised in an American Presbyterian church, memorizing the Westminster Shorter Catechism wasn't entirely unique or no. or exceptional.
2: No, it wasn't. But it was obviously something that the household and Minnie considered a great accomplishment. And Machen showed the most religious interest, I guess you would say, spiritual interest uh, of the three boys. And I think Minnie would say later in life that he was her favorite which I don't think mothers should say, <laughs> but when
1: unless you have one, that's right, okay. Exactly. But if you've got more than one, it's a little complicated.
2: But when Machen published uh, the Virgin Birth of Christ, she sent a copy to her alma mater and said and wrote her inscription said something to the effect that this my, this my son is my most prized accomplishment, and because he had been a, a great churchman. And she had always supported everything he did, even when the church, the first Presbyterian church in Baltimore, had a pastor who became more of a modernist. And she withstood a lot of criticism for upholding, you know, standing by her son when he was going through all of his troubles from the the church and the pastor's family for that. But she knew where she stood. She would... In the afternoons, on Sunday afternoons, she would have pre-prepared Bible lessons so that the boys would sit down and whoever, what other relatives were in the house of, you know, the teenage age, early 20s, would sit down and answer these questions. And then she would call one son at a time and discuss the questions with them. So she was very conscientious about making sure her... Her sons weren't just given to the church to to learn things, but she catechized them and raised them at home, trying to direct their spiritual lives. So Machen, in his biography or in his biographical essay that he wrote, attributes his career basically to his mother and her ra- her raising of him, her teaching of
1: him. How old was Machen when, when she passed away?
2: Machen lived till 1937 in many Machen lived till about 1932 or 33. So he, he was a bachelor's son, and he spent, after uh, his father died, his father was considerably older than his mother, had had to establish his career in Baltimore before he could marry. So he married the Southern Belle, who was about 20 years younger than he was. So Minnie, Minnie survived her husband for several years, and Machen would do his best as the bachelor's son to ensure she still had her summer vacations. You know, one summer he found a used car so they could tool around in New Hampshire in a used car, and he would write to his mother when he was away. Some people take that as him being a mama's boy, and I don't necessarily think it's that. I think it's more of the family tradition. His other brother, his older brother, basically half the time lived in in the Machen house in Baltimore, um he'd bought he'd married and he'd he'd settled in the Baltimore area, but he'd bought a house that had not been winterized. So I think that the fact that all these letters exist between Machen and his mother come from the fact that Machen was off at Princeton or he was in Germany or he was traveling and he um he was not in Baltimore and that's why they corresponded so much.
1: And people used to write to one another. I mean I I've oh, yes. I've seen correspondence in my family from people who were let's say, not particularly literate, or one wouldn't have expected them to be particularly literate. Nevertheless, fairly articulate letters and fairly extensive correspondence. So though in our world today, wow well, we correspond by email and text messages, you know, little telegraphic blips, people used to sit down on a regular basis and write to one another on paper fold it up, put it in an envelope, and send it off. And, and it was just expected that you would do that. It was expected, you just assumed that you would do that. It's very
2: interesting because there are letters from when Minnie Machen and Arthur went off on their a honeymoon to Europe for several months, and not postcards were sent home, but descriptive letters about what they saw, what they did each day, where they traveled. People wanted to know what their families were doing
1: you couldn't log on to something and see what they were seeing
2: exactly
1: and it, there's no television there's no radio international newspapers are probably very difficult to get if you're outside of New York City and so um, this sort of correspondence was a major form of communication and transmission of information
2: yes and there are there's a lot of extant correspondence during the war, during the Civil War, in the family, and because resources were so scarce, they would write one way across the paper, and then they would turn the paper 45 degrees, and they would write another way across the paper. So you have, and then you would you'd see in the margins, they would be writing really small, but they wanted to get all of the information in on this precious paper that they didn't have very much of, um, but it was so important to uh, communicate with your your family to say, I'm okay, this is what's going on, and these are the milestones in my children's lives, things like that. So it's, it's wonderful that they, they knew their sense of history, their place in history, that they would have preserved all of this family material. So so rich in just biography and social history. Minnie Machen wrote in her diary every day, So we have from the late 1800s into, you know, 1932, I think was their last entry, we have her household activities. So we see how they used to beat the rugs and then they hired in somebody to vacuum the rugs and then eventually they had their own vacuum cleaner and and just socially she would record when her day was for people to come and visit her and then she recorded when she went and visited other people on their days and whenever somebody was going out of town one of her relatives her nephew or niece or um her brother would stop by and say i'm leaving goodbye and how that transitioned into telephone calls that would say i'm going goodbye
1: So this correspondence gives us a picture, and the diaries give us a picture not only of a family and of Machen, but of social and technological development across a span of time.
2: Yes, it's it's fascinating. We talk about they used to have a place for the horse and carriage, and then they had to turn it into a garage for their automobile. Just things like that that you don't think about. You think about the streetcars, and then when the streetcars weren't there anymore, things like that that... I think it would it would make a very rich social history if somebody wanted to go back through these papers just to see the American life and how it changed in a matter of 50
1: years. You're listening to Office Hours. I'm Scott Clark, and we're talking with Dr. Catherine Vendrunen about J. Gress of Machen and particularly about his life in his family, in his home context, how he was raised, and how that helped produce the man who gave us the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and... Westminster Seminary. When we come back, we're going to return to a subject that we've touched on earlier, and that is Machen's connection to the South and a related question, and that is Machen's attitudes towards race relations, and we'll do that right after this.
0: In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, Jay Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888 480 8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Catherine, Jay
1: Gresham Machen was a Southerner. He had deep roots in the South, and yet you've indicated there's a certain ambiguity, shall we say, in Machen's family's relationship with the South. Some writers made much of Machen's debt to the so-called cult of lost causes, and some have raised questions about Machen's views on race,
2: I guess you would have to go back to the Gresham side of the family. The Machen side of the family never was very prosperous. Um, Machen's great grandfather or grand Machen's grandfather wor- worked as clerk of the Senate. He had um, his father had died when he was quite young, and he had to go to work to support his mother and his sister. So he worked for many years, and it, it, he was never appointed to the official. Clerk of the session, so he had decided to when he had enough money buy property in in Virginia, and he wanted to become a farmer, but was never able to afford to leave his career. So his sons ran the farm. His Machen's grandmother Caroline um, helped out with the farm. And he had to continue to work. So basically, as far as I can tell, his sons maybe had some servants, day laborers or other, maybe one or two slaves, but they never really could afford to be part of the whole plantation type system where they had many workers, maybe somebody in the house too. But as I've said before, Machen's father or grandfather, uh, John Gresham in Macon, Georgia, had a couple of plantations, had house servants. And that house is still existent in Macon. It, actually, it's in, um, it's now a bed and breakfast. And you see that it, it is not this huge house as portrayed in Gone with the Wind type thing. It's not a plantation house. It's in the city. He, uh, the Gressoms, never lived on a plantation, never really had that kind of... It was more property that, uh, that they had off-site farming going on um there's discussion in letters about John Gresham would go out to the plantations and he would have to deal with some slaves and he had no qualms about considering them as property
1: so they're they're people of their time and of their place
2: yes absolutely but you see during the civil war that they had great affection for their slaves especially the ones who worked in their home which
1: was fairly typical
2: yes but I, you don't see things about abuse. Basically, it was if the servants wanted to leave during the war and join the Union cause, so be it, go. After the war, they made sure that their, their former slaves were taken care of. John Gresham, in fact, after the war, the slaves who had ad- traditionally in the Presbyterian Church and other churches, the slaves would attend church with their masters. They would just sit up in the balcony. And when the slaves, former slaves had decided after the war, they wanted their own church, John Gresham saw to that and basically single-handedly raised the money and had the church built for them. So you see later on too, in Baltimore, slaves would, former slaves would come by and, you know, extend greetings to many that she had known as a, a, look, a girl in Macon. So, There wasn't this sense of, I guess there wasn't this sense of racial tension in the South at that time.
1: Well, there are accepted social roles. Yes. And so long as people stayed, as long as slaves and ex-slaves stayed within their bounds, everything was fine. Yes. But obviously, if you're a slave, however benevolent this relationship was, because I can imagine a listener thinking, okay, well... It's all well and good to to paint the Machen family in the best possible light and to describe them as benevolent, but they're still slave owners, right. And they're still people of their time, yes. And and the pattern you're describing was replicated all across the South, and it's still a, a story, uh, fundamentally, of a certain kind of oppression, even if there is a kind of benevolent uh, and even familial connection oh yes between ex-slaves yes. and and ex-slaves but ex-slave what you find
2: owners. in the 18th century especially before the tensions with abolitionism is equal treatment in the churches you see that there was church discipline equally done against masters against who had uh, wrong slaves if the slaves were members of the church too um, you saw a little different treatment in the church than, you know, than you would see played out in the fields, I guess,
1: maybe. But African-American scholars would hasten to point out that, yes, you could suffer discipline for—potentially for abusing a slave— but you wouldn't necessarily in the South suffer discipline for owning a slave right. or for buying a slave no. or for selling a slave. So you no. still have that fundamentally right. inequitable relationship. Right. But it's right. good to condition some of that in some ways.
0: It
2: It is. And I think that, you know, so many people say, well, the Civil War was about slavery. Well, to the Machins and the Greshams, it was about the government intruding into private life and financial life these slaves were a big part of financial property. And yes, they were property. They ran the plantations. The work would not have been done any other way. So much is written and rewritten about all of this, the war between the states or the Civil War. But back to your initial question. Uh, yes, the whole family was involved in the United Daughters of the Confed- Confederacy. Minnie was a member of that. In fact, Minnie's brother, his first wife had passed away, and his second wife was an adamant member of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, so he had a personal relationship with some of the leaders of the Confederate Army, and so all of the Machin women, whether you were Southern or not, uh, became part of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and this was not the KKK, This was basically um, honoring all of the people that they had known who had fought for the freedom of the South. Uh, Rightly or wrongly, these people had fought and suffered and died, and they wanted to remember them. All of the denominations had split during the war, but the Presbyterian Church was one that was very slow to reunite. I think they were the last mainline denomination, actually, to reunite. What people make a big deal out of was when a black student, an African-American, they wanted to put him in the dorm rooms with the white students at Princeton Seminary. And Machen was a professor, and he actually lived in one of the dorms um, with the students. And he made a big fuss about black students, yes, it's fine to have them here at Princeton Seminary, but not living in the dorms with the white students. He had a big brush up with a uh, Professor Warfield, who was also a Southerner, about this, and they had conflicting ideas about it. Um, I think that he held to his views, and it was just part of who he was and how he saw the
1: world. If someone said to you, Doctor Vindrunen, what should I read to get to know Machen? What books would you recommend?
2: Well, um, if I ever get around to publishing my dissertation, that would be the first one I would I would say, just because it 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 gives a bigger picture of. M- where Machen came from. Ned Stonehouse, who knew Machen personally, has written a wonderful biography with footnotes or endnotes. And I think that his book is rich. If you really look at it, it paints a very detailed description, starting with Machen's heritage and going through his whole life. Um, That can't just be, you can't just take parts of it out. You have to read the whole thing to really get a, a good picture of who Machen is. And I think that is the primary work on Machen as a biography. And then Daryl Hart's writings on intellectually and spiritually. Daryl Hartner's done a wonderful job analyzing Machen and drawing out different parts of his life.
1: You can find these books at the bookstore wscal. wscal.edu. edu slash bookstore, including Machen's Christianity and Liberalism, Jay Gresham Machen's Shorter Writings, Ned Stonehouse's Biographical Memoir, Machen on Galatians, Machen on the Origin of
0: Paul's Religion. So everything you want is there in the bookstore. Catherine, this has been delightful. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.